Father in heaven, we thank you for the profound treasure that we have in this passage, and even more so of the profound treasure we have in your love that this passage talks about. Lord, we thank you that you don't love us because we're lovely, but because you're lovely. Lord, we pray that um, our barriers would come down, Lord, that we would lower our defenses, that we would willing, uh, be willing to uh, put our hearts in a vulnerable place as we hear your word this morning, Lord, because we long to know you, we long to be refreshed by you. We need your light to break in. So come this morning, fill us up, Lord. Fill us up, teach us, draw us into your presence, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as you may have guessed um, from our text in Romans 5 today, our central topic this morning is the love of God. And not meaning uh, our own love for God, but God's profound love for us. Are you actively aware of this this morning? How deeply and profoundly you are loved by God? What kind of difference does it make in a person's life when they become convinced that they're loved by God? How does experiencing God's love change us? I think we would all readily admit that God's love is an essential ingredient of human flourishing, right? Without the love of our parents in our formative years, for example, our personal development is stunted and we're usually left with deep emotional scars. Without the love of friends, we may face crushing loneliness in this life. We may stray from the path or forget who we really are. There's also such a thing as a healthy sense of love for oneself. Amen? Now, I'm not saying that it's impossible to thrive in this life without these foundational earthly loves, but it's pretty darn close to impossible. And yet, saints... This morning, I'm here to tell you that there's a love that is even more foundational, even more vital to our well-being, and that is the love of God. In John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And this is the kind of self-giving, agape love that God demonstrated on the cross. But with this added ingredient, actually, that Jesus was willing to die for us before we were his friends. In fact, while we were still sinners, still his enemies. This is the extraordinary message that we just heard, that we just read in Romans 5. Please open there with me. And beginning at verse 6, it says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Paul's like, I guess maybe that's possible when it comes to us. But he continues in verse 8, he says, but God, say to your neighbor, but God... But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, listen to the adjectives that are used to describe us. Weak, 
verse 6. Ungodly, verse 6b. Sinners, verse 8. And that was our status in heaven before the time when the bridegroom laid down his life for the bride. Verse 10 goes even further. It says, for if while we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Paul's point here is not to put us down, actually, or to denigrate the human race. It is, in fact, to exalt the love of God, because love can be expressed through the costliness of the gift and through the worthiness of the recipient, right? And here, Paul wants us to know that the gift comes at the greatest cost, the death of God's eternal son. And this cross-shaped love, God extends out. He holds out. He still holds out to us. Every one of us, even today, unworthy recipients though we are, while we're weak, while we're ungodly, while we're sinners, while we're enemies of God. It had nothing to do with our lovability. Some of us are feeling like, I'm not very lovable. It had nothing to do with our lovability and everything to do with God's own beautiful heart. This is what Sally Lloyd-Jones refers to as uh, God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Some of you might have read that in the Jesus Storybook Bible, and that's what God's love is like. It's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And friends, the world had never seen a love like this before, right? No parent, no friend, no self-love can substitute for the agape love of God. When Jesus died on the cross for his enemies, it flipped the world upside down and it continues to flip our lives upside down, right? The love of God transformed Paul from being a terrorist into being an apostle, right? The love of God set the Samaritan woman in John 4 free from her checkered history with men. It caused John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, to repent of the slave trade and become an abolitionist. And so he sang, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It's this love, the love of Christ that kept Corey Temboom company in her, as her body wasted away in a, in a Nazi concentration camp. And even closer to our time and closer to our community, we have many examples of God's transformative love. Think of the testimonies we've been hearing. Only the love of God could have set Kevin Long free from his addictions and rescued him off the streets or removed the fog of lust and pride from Hope's life or began to heal the childhood wounds left by Meg's father, right? The love of God heals us. The love of God transforms us. It washes us. It sets us free. It gives us a new name. It sets our feet on solid ground. It fills our cups. It rescues us from ourselves. The love of God adopts us. The love of God adorns us. It beautifies us. It dignifies us. It restores the years that the locusts have ate. The love of God is the fuel that we were meant to burn and the song that we were meant to sing. The love of God is everything. It's everything. It's everything. 
Do you know that this morning, beloved? Does your soul know how profoundly you have been loved by your creator, by this eternal God? This is my topic today, the love of God. And there's this shift in Romans 5 from describing our need for the gospel and the way that the gospel works to describing the relationship that comes with God as a result. Chapter 5, verse 1 begins with the word, therefore. And whenever we see this word in the scriptures, we should always ask the question, what is the word therefore? Therefore, right? And Paul explains, he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that's what he's just spent the first four chapters of Romans explaining why justification by works doesn't work, and therefore how God made a way for us to be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. But there's a difference between how something works, knowing the mechanics of something, and actually enjoying the benefits, right? An engineer might be able to describe how the gears of a clock work, how it enables them, the mechanisms to do what they're supposed to do, but there's a difference between knowing how a clock works and actually using it to tell time, right? Photosynthesis describes the process whereby a tree produces fruit, but the fruit of salvation is relational reconciliation. And that's another matter altogether. Justification is illegal. It's a forensic word, right? It tells how our records might be expunged by a just judge. But reconciliation used three times just in verses 10 and 11. It's a relational word. So the means of salvation is faith, but the purpose of salvation is always a restored relationship with God. We're not saved by grace through faith in order to be saved by grace through faith, right? We're saved by grace through faith so that God could bring us back to himself, so that the Father who was always sad, always brokenhearted, that we had to be cast out of Eden could bring us back into loving relationship with himself. Jesus says in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, that they know you. Do you hear that relational language? That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So through Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Here and now, Romans 5.1, and also verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith, into the grace in which we stand. So the curtain's been torn, brothers and sisters. There's a present tense access that we have with God. God is scandalously available to us. The veil has been lifted. The barriers have been removed. And furthermore, there's this foundation of grace in which we, in which we stand, that the sphere of mercy undergirds our entire relationship with him, not disappointment, not sadness, not enmity. All of these benefits, all of these Greek phrases are in the present tense. But there's a future tense to this relationship as well. And this is what Paul calls hope. The Greek word is elpis. Now in English, 
hope is is sort of a flimsy word usually. It often means something like, well, I don't really expect it to happen, but it would be nice if it did, right? Uh, but its use in the Bible is the opposite. El peace is always a weighty word, an anchor that you can count on even in the midst of suffering. One Anglican theologian I know uh, describes the solidity of biblical hope by using the analogy of med school. He says that in America, uh, we have very selective entry requirements for med school. And so many smart and capable people can't even get entry, right? Uh, so much so that the students who do gain entry are essentially guaranteed a good job, a meaningful, high-paying vocation when they graduate. Now, on the other hand, when you're getting your PhD in something like philosophy, it might be hard to stay focused because you don't even know if you're going to get a job when you graduate. But for these med school students, it's their hope in that future job that helps them to persevere in the midst of their long and arduous studies. The most demanding barrier has actually already been crossed through their entrance exams, and therefore they're able to persevere in the hope of that future vocation. And that's the kind of thing that Paul's talking about here in Romans 5. Jesus has actually already met the high entry requirements for heavenly glory. We've already obtained access and we're standing in his grace. And therefore, when we face trials in this life, when we face suffering in this life, we're able to, quote, rejoice even in our sufferings. Verse 3 knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. John Stott writes, if God has already done the difficult thing, can we not trust him to do the comparatively simple thing of completing the task? That's what biblical hope is like. It's a weighty expectation of future glory that rests on the sure foundation of the finished work of Christ. Amen? But this hope doesn't solely rest on what God has done in the past through Calvary, as glorious as what that is, as glorious as all that is. Um, but as we persevere in our sufferings in the present, the Holy Spirit is also with us, right? Verse 5 says that the hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Isn't that a striking phrase? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is actually the first time that Romans mentions the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian, but it will be far from the last. And what Paul is saying is that through our experience of God's love by the Holy Spirit in this present life, we gain a greater sense of assurance that we will be glorified in him in the next life, right? Because if we have a relationship with him now, this is eternal life to know him, right? So we will have that relationship with him forever. So there's this connection between God's love now and our future hope. I had this uh, Pentecostal friend through campus ministry back in the day, and I used to love praying with her because she was like a lightning rod for the presence of God. And when you were around her, you felt it. And whenever we would pray, 
uh, she would pause for a moment. She would hold out her hands and she would just say, glory, 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 glory. And then she might throw in a, yes, thank you, Lord, before she would begin to pray. She was like a cheerleader for God's presence and for the love of God being poured into our hearts. And what she seemed to be saying in those opening moments of prayer was, Lord, I know you're there. Father, I know you're there. I feel your presence. And looking back, I think how very appropriate it was for her to connect this very future-focused word, glory, to her present experience with the love of God. That's what Paul's connecting here. Now, I, I want to say as a caveat, and we could preach a whole sermon about this, of course, that not every Christian experiences the loving presence of God in the same way or with the same regularity. That's not the promise of scripture. All believers, even the great saints and mystics, testify to times, sometimes long periods of time, of spiritual dryness. And when it comes to degree of experience, even Paul references an experience elsewhere of being caught up to the third heaven, and he doesn't expect all believers to have experienced that same thing, right? There are mysteries between our relationship with God that are, that are just us alone. But Paul does assume that all Christians, all genuine converts, have experienced genuine relational dynamics with God. So he assumes that this language of divine love through the Holy Spirit is going to be intelligible to those who are Christians, right? To all Christians. So now let's return to our central topic of the, of the love of God. And I, I wanna kind of put these pieces together. So we've seen from the first verse, Romans five shifts us from describing the way salvation works to describing the fruit of salvation, and that it's all about relationship, peace, reconciliation with God. We see in verse 10 that there's a past, there's a present, there's even a future component to this relationship. We've also seen that there's, um, in this future dimension that we call hope, um, that, that this is actually something that's been made secure for us. It's something we can have confidence in because Jesus has met the entry requirements through the cross and because he has given us assurance of this future hope through his present indwelling spirit. All of this is bound up together with the love of God. How can we know that God loves us? Romans 5, 1 through 11 has given us two answers, if you think about it, the cross and the spirit, right? History and experience. And if we think about it, this is actually a very satisfying combination because we all long to be loved through tangible action, right? Actions speak louder than words, but we also long for a love that can be felt and experience. And what Paul is saying is that God loves us in both of these ways. John Stott summarizes the message. He writes, objectively in history and subjectively in experience, God has given us good grounds for believing in his love. The integration of the historical ministry of God's son on the cross 
with the contemporary ministry of his spirit in our hearts is one of the most wholesome and satisfying features of the gospel. Now, seeing that the gospel uh, firmly establishes the love of God, I want to end by seeking to address the question, how can we enter into this love? How can we experience more of God's love? And I want to give three answers, and then I want to open it up for a few minutes of Q&A afterwards, all right? So how can we enter into this love? And the first thing that I want to say is to point us back to the objective and historical grounds for the love of God that we see in the cross of Christ. This is the initial doorway into relational love with God, the cross of Christ, faith in Jesus Christ. But it's also, it's not just the initial doorway for those of us who have never experienced the love of God. It's also an ongoing doorway. It's a well that we come back to and draw from as believers again and again and again. Amen. And just, just because it's something that happened 2,000 years ago doesn't make it any less tangible. It doesn't make it the payoff any less. I, you know, imagine if a child had been orphaned, had lost both their parents, right? And then they discovered uh, a journal from their parents that recorded uh, all the ways that their parents uh, sacrificially loved them, were seeking to lay down their lives to provide for their child, right? If, if, if an orphan found that later in life, that journal would be precious to them. It would incite feelings of love even in that moment. And that's what the cross of Christ should do for us, right? And so if you have felt alienated from the love of God, or maybe you've never experienced the love of God, the, thing, the first thing that I would tell you to do is meditate on the cross of Christ and receive that message through lively faith. And actually, there's a book that I would recommend to you if you're like, the love of God is growing cold in my heart and you need to return to these objective grounds of God's love. I want to point you to the book, The Cross of Christ by John Stott. I've quoted Stott a couple of times in my sermon today. This is such a beautiful extended meditation on what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. And if you spend time reading that and just turning that over in your heart and mind, the precious love that God showed for you on the cross, I think that will be a well for you to experience afresh the love of God. So that's the first thing. Begin by focusing on the objective and historical love of God shown to us in Christ. Second, I want you to ask yourself this diagnostic question. If you're desiring to experience the love of God and you feel like the love of God has grown cold in your life, I want you to ask yourself this question. Are you still spending time with God? Right? Because in any relationship, any marriage, things are going to grow cold if you don't prioritize time together. And I know that for me, um, you know, just going back to the very basic, you know, time of setting aside time to be with the Lord in the word and in the prayer and in prayer is just a place of love, a place where I encounter God's heart for me. I may not experience the same thing every day, but I just find there's consistent dynamics of love in that place. And so if your love for God and your experience of the love of God is growing cold, I would ask, are you still setting aside that time? 
or don't just think of it on an individual level. How about corporately? You know, are you spending time worshiping God together with the saints, studying God's word together with the saints? There's a second book recommendation that I want to make, and that's the book Prayer by Richard Foster. If you, he talks about both these communal dynamics and individual dynamics. If you find yourself um, feeling like you've just not been spending time with God like you used to, I want to encourage you to read this. And I want to give you an invitation so that I'm not just kind of trying to lay heavy burdens on you and not willing to lift a finger. If you um, get that book, Prayer by Foster, and you start to read it and start to practice it, I would love to meet with you and hear how God is speaking to you through that and help you to learn more about how to connect with God through prayer. All right, now I have a second diagnostic question and this is my third and final point. Um, if you feel like the love of God has grown cold in your life, I want you to ask yourself the question, have you allowed secondary loves to crowd out the primary love? which is the love of God, right? And these secondary loves may be a good thing. In all likelihood, they are, but they're not ultimate things in the same way that the love of God is. And if you read the saints down through the ages, what they'll tell you again and again is that you need to guard yourself against these secondary loves becoming idols and taking the place of our primary love. Blaise Pascal says, the infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, with God himself. St. Augustine likewise says, seek what you seek, but not where you seek it. Friends, seek what you seek, but not where you seek it. There's a book entitled A Severe Mercy uh, by Sheldon Van Auken. And in it, he talks about the danger of putting earthly love over the love of God. He says that he came to wonder whether all the objects that men and women set their hearts upon, even the darkest, and most obsessive desires do not begin as intimations of joy from the soul spring from God. And so he's saying, even, even maybe even our darkest desires, it's actually a deep yearning for God, right? And he, he continues to tease this out. And I think this is very relevant for us. He says, One's man, one man's intimation of joy through beauty may lead him to painting and thence, Here's how it slips, to beauty half forgotten, to the advocacy of nothing more than an artistic fashion, or that same degree to be, uh, or that same desire to be one with beauty may lead another man to cutthroat art collecting or to flamboyant Wildean excess in his personal life. Someone else may think, may link the joy with a glimpse of heavenly justice and then be led into law or perhaps communism, justice in the end forgotten. He says the priest's vocation may spring from his glimpse of God as joy, but that vocation may become Episcopal politics, God-mouthed and forgotten. And I think this is the case for us guys. Some of us love beauty so much that it's become this primary thing 
Not that we're seeking God through anymore, but we're just seeking that experience. Some of us care so much about justice and care so much about politics that, that, that that's actually crowding out the ultimate thing. And I'll just confess to you this morning that, man, the love of God can just become something that pastors like John and I just, just mouth and are no longer taking the time to experience. But we all need this experience. We all need to know the never-stopping never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. All right, so I want to open it up now um, for a few questions. I thought that, um, that this sermon, especially this idea of experiencing the love of God and the basis for knowing that God loves us might bring out some questions. So if you have a question for me, I'll, I'll just take a few and um, we're gonna do this instead of going into our breakout rooms this morning. So feel free to just unmute and ask. I um, have a question that's about the this passage we read not necessarily go ahead uh but it relates to what you're saying um in uh, verse uh three it says uh we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering uh, produces endurance um so this sounds to me like a sort of like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger kind of thing mm -hmm. and uh that sort of reasoning hasn't really been my experience with suffering uh mm. typically found and I've, I've seen you know and sort of like our conversations about like trauma and the way that affects people uh oftentimes suffering can really just kind of uh weaken you uh sometimes for the rest of your life um and i was wondering if you uh could comment on that and maybe what paul might be saying here yeah thank you um that's an awesome question zach um, I have two thoughts about that. Um, uh, on the one hand, I would say when it comes to the suffering in our lives, um, when we're assessing uh, the impact that it's ha had on our life, I think sometimes we zoom back and we look at our lives, but we don't actually zoom back far enough. Uh, and we don't look at it from God's perspective. So I, I, I think that that's part of the answer is actually um, God zooms back further than we do. And I think more to the point that you're, that you're mentioning, I don't think the promise is that suffering will always be redemptive, but that suffering for those who are in Christ is redemptive. And I think that um, oftentimes um, the trauma that we experience, um, whether through um, you know, some sort of neglect from our childhood or through the breaking of our hearts through sexual immorality or, or something like that, it actually becomes the weakness that we experience by which we become ministers of redemption in other people's lives, right? Depressed people know how to minister to depressed people. People who have been addicted know how to minister to addicted people. And so these become sort of scars in our lives, but they become scars that, that kind of are like luminous, right? As Jesus gets a hold of us over, over time, these kind of scars, they, they glow out and they become um, uh, redemptive in the lives of others. And so I think that's at least part of the answer. Yeah, Sarah. Can I jump in just having studied this passage this week? Um, I think one other helpful tidbit is that the word that Paul uses here for suffering is specifically throughout the rest of the New Testament used 
um, I think exclusively in the context of persecution. And so I think the particular kind of suffering Paul has in mind here is um, pushback for following Jesus, mm -hmm. um, which does tend to strengthen our resolve um, in discipleship. And so maybe less applicable to like childhood sexual abuse or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think Paul has a little bit of a narrower uh, focus in mind anyway, when he's, he's talking about suffering here, just given the word choice. Yeah, that's right. Um, the word is a uh, thlipsis, which is almost like a technical word for, um, for like end time suffering. Although to speak to your point, Zach, um, I do think in other places like first Peter or Hebrews or elsewhere, um, there is a, a more robust kind of theology of how our suffering in this life, um, that's even, uh, uh, uh of various kinds. God uses to um, to form us in those ways. Can I say something? Please. I also found that the suffering, when I didn't even know Jesus, has he can use in our lives the very hard places he can use to redeem and for us to increase understanding and compassion for those who are going through the same thing. So it can be redemptive in that way. So um, I found looking back at my life, the places, well, the hardest places God has used to, to, for me to understand those who are going through similar places. Amen. Amen. And I think the promise in Romans is not uh, is not that God did it to you, but that God can work through all things for those who love him and are called according to his purposes in Christ Jesus. Uh, Pascal, you're raising your hand. What's your question, sister? I see. Um, can you, I don't want to assume that I understand what you said. Uh, um, seek what you seek but not where you seek yeah seek what you seek but not where you seek it um that that was uh that was um saint augustine's quote and i think by that what he's trying to say is um uh the love that that humans express in a longing for romance for example or a longing for artistic beauty um or, or um, you know, the love that we long for in the companionship of friendship is actually supposed to be um, what we would say in, in the church sacramental. It's actually um, something that it, 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 they, these things are a good thing, um, but the best thing about them is how they have an ability to point us to eternal truths about God. So, you know, uh, so the scriptures uh, latch on to like uh, the marriage dynamic as a window into uh, the heart of God, or uh, Jesus even uh, uh, talks about food, right? Um, I am the bread of life, right? And so uh, seek what you seek, but not where you seek it. I think it's his uh, way of saying um, these desires that we have are actually a good thing, um, but um, that um, God has set eternity in our hearts, as it says in Ecclesiastes. And um, that that can only be satisfied through the eternal love that's offered to us in God. So these things are actually supposed to um, be uh, sort of vehicles for us to to encounter God. So like not to make not to make these really good and precious gifts into the ultimate thing, 
is I think what he's after, seek what you seek, but not where you seek it. Is there maybe one or two more? And, um, Taylor, so the, is it, I remember, I think it was last week, uh, the, the word paradoxical came up or maybe it was the week before. And um, I guess just is this is kind of in that same realm of like the way that God works in our lives is, is kind of a paradoxical thing that's hard for us to understand um, how, how this suffering or this like pushback from, from life or trying to leave, uh, lead a Christian life and these, these desires and these like this hurt that, that, that happens whatever in whatever form it takes that pain, which can cause weakness, but that weakness that then pushes us back towards God, which then gives us that strength. It's like this, it's a paradoxical kind of system or something along those lines. I don't know exactly how I'm trying to articulate it, but is it something like that, I guess, in this? Yeah. Um, I do think that there's a paradox to it because uh, none of us want suffering, right? Paul, um, Paul would even leave towns <laughs> sometimes when persecution got really heavy. Um, this is not a masochistic desire to just suffer, but it's a promise that in the sovereignty of God, he can bring redemption even into the worst things. And um, I think actually the ultimate example of that is the cross, right? Because the cross like looks like a, like a defeat. It looks like a tragedy, right? Jesus is betrayed by his friend with a kiss. And if that can be used to, um, to uh, be the instrument of ultimate love and redemption, how much more so can God use any little thing in our life? It's interesting that um, the question, so many of the questions and comments have to do about suffering, which wasn't really uh, the main part of my sermon, but everybody picked that up in the passage because I think 2020 has been a pretty crazy year. But, but yeah, I think that um, that, um, the Christian message and, and part of what we're hearing in this passage when it comes to suffering is not, not just uh, the redemption that we experience, but part of God's, uh, what God's word is on suffering is both that, that he didn't just stand aloof in heaven and just sort of like watch us suffering from his throne. He came down from his throne and took our suffering on himself. So that's the historical aspect of God's love. But Paul also wants to know us uh, wants us to know that um, through the present love expressed to us in the Holy Spirit, we have a companion in our suffering, right? That, I mean, uh, especially the suffering in this passage being related to that persecution we experience with Christ, but, uh, but the Holy Spirit walks with us through all kinds of sufferings in our life. So he doesn't stand aloof. He's there with us. He gets into the trenches experiencing suffering and then, uh, there's also another in the fire with us, right? We could say um, when we go through uh, the suffering and trials of this life. I, 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 I would like to add that the term suffering necessarily entails a certain degree of powerlessness. If we had power to alleviate the suffering, we would alleviate the suffering. But that, um, that the, the experience of suffering cures us of our delusion that that we are the ones with the power uh we often give credit to god with our mouths but silently in our hearts we actually think that we're in charge 
that uh, and that the suffering and the helplessness of not being able to to cure the suffering redirects us to God because we know that we can't handle it and only He can. Amen. Amen. Um, well, thank you. That that's actually a good punctuation mark uh, on the sermon and on the Q and A today. Thank you guys for your questions and for your comments. Um, uh, I'm really grateful for you guys, uh, for this community, and how we're still trying to wrestle with God in the midst of um, suffering and hardship in this season. And so um, let me just say a word of prayer as we close, and, uh, and then we'll come to the Apostles' Creed. Father in heaven, I want to thank you again for your love for us. It's love um, that you've shown through the costliest gift given to us as undeserving recipients. Thank you for this historical uh, testimony to your love for us. And we also thank you, Lord, that you testify to your love through us by experience, by us experiencing um, these relational dynamics and your hand of blessing and affirmation and um, that love that you give us, that adopting love um, by which we, we respond to you, Abba, Father. And, uh, and Lord, so we thank you um, for your great love. Help us to enter into it uh, more deeply and walk in it all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.